Today's Snap Judgment is brought to you by Stamps.com. With the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. Got the traffic, the parking, it's going to be packed with everyone mailing holiday gifts and packages. So, use Stamps.com instead. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your own computer or printer. It's easy and convenient. Plus, Stamps.com will give you a digital scale. It automatically calculates the exact postage you'll need for any letter or package. You can print the postage directly onto your envelopes, labels, even on plain paper, and then just hand your mail to your mail carrier. With Stamps.com, you'll never have to go to the post office again. And right now, there's a special offer for listeners of the Snap Podcast, a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Do not wait. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in SNAP. That's Stamps.com. Enter SNAP and happy mailing. Okay, so when I was a kid, on Channel 5, after school every day, they'd show the 4 o'clock movie, right? And you know, they'd have their Elvis week, or the Shirley Temple week. Pure torture. This was pre the 5,000 channels. You had to just sit there and suffer through. But once a year, they'd have the most fantastical, bestest, most awesome week of all. Godzilla week. It's Godzilla! And me and my brother, we'd run home, right? Mama, we need some popcorn. And we'd mix us up some strawberry Kool-Aid, plop down on the beanbag chair, and we'd be ready, Jack. Godzilla versus Mothra, or versus a smog monster, or versus King Kong. And it wasn't a Godzilla movie until they started destroying Tokyo. Fire, and x-rays, and lava, and knocking over whole city blocks, and epic fights. We'd laugh and holler, get him Godzilla, mess him up. After the bedlam, Godzilla would return to the sea, ready to rise again for the next movie. I loved every minute of it. So imagine my delight when I moved to Japan with my brother and we discovered a country full of people who love Godzilla. Godzilla stores, Godzilla candy, Godzilla toilet paper. And then we heard about a Godzilla triple feature going down in Kyoto and we were there. Just like old times, got some popcorn, ran right to the middle seat in the middle of the theater and started having a ball. Get him, Godzilla! Take that, Tokyo! (laughs) But the mood in the theater, it didn't match up with our time back in front of the TV. Even as we yelled at the screen, people around us sat quiet and contemplative. It made me think, what's going on? Are we watching the same monster? Then I watched Godzilla torched Tokyo with his radiation breath. And it occurred to me, the people who suffered Hiroshima, the people who suffered Nagasaki, they knew the real radiation breath. And this was their monster. Turns out that real monsters don't come from a swamp. They don't creep from a volcano. They don't drop from outer space. Real monsters lurk in the hearts of the people. Today on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Monsters. Stories about creatures we would love to pretend don't exist when deep inside, we know how real they are. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment.
now then for our first story on the Snap Judgment Monsters episode. We take you, dear snappers, to Los Angeles, the city of monsters. It's a very special recording from our most recent show, Snap Judgment Live in L.A. Now then, a favorite of our show and someone who always makes me smile, please put your hands together for Mr. James Judd. My name is James, and this is a story about how I made my first friend in New England. Mid-1990s, well, I left my home in Los Angeles of many years to move to New Hampshire to go to law school, a state I'd never even visited. I don't know a single person in the entire state Law school doesn't begin until August. And because I'm the type of person who does everything early, I get there in May. Well, there really isn't much in New Hampshire except for trees and... Trees... Trees... So one day I'm walking around and I'm looking at the trees and the birds and I'm eating tortilla chips, which is something that I enjoy doing. And I start to choke. And now I'm running around the forest of New Hampshire, throwing myself against boulders and trees, trying to dislodge this tortilla chip and panicking. And I finally, I spit it out and I say, I need a friend. (laughs) So I go to Boston and I find some community papers and I look for some sort of club to join. And I find one the Boston Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Scuba Club. (laughs) Well, I don't know why you think that's funny. (laughs) Underwater adventures are a very big thing within the LGBT community. (laughs) Well, it turns out that this uh, dive club is going to have a shark cage dive off of the coast of Rhode Island in two days. I think, well, this is perfect. Because I scuba dive, and I've always wanted to go on a shark cage dive, and now I can make some friends. I'm multitasking. That was a new word in the mid-90s. Multitasking. I'm synergizing. That was another new word. I'm multitasking, synergizing. I'm practically a lawyer already. So I make a call. I buy a map. I drive half the night. I arrive at this boat dock on the coast of Rhode Island, and it's still dark out, and the fog is very thick, and the birds are going, caw, caw, caw. And there's this big boat, sort of like a deadliest catch fishing boat with a shark cage on it. And at the end of the dock, about a dozen men and women are with their scuba equipment. Well, I go down and I introduce myself and they're all very nice people. But the fact is, well, they're already all friends. So they have plenty of things to talk about that don't involve me. So I go up on this boat and I start to take a look at this, uh, this shark cage. Well, it's about 10 feet tall, and it's about this wide over here, and it's maybe this wide, this way, just big enough for two people, and it's got red buoys, great big red buoys on, on each corner to keep it floating on the surface, and, and an escape hatch on the top, and, and over here there's a door with a, a very complicated lock, you know, because the fish are tricky with the locks. And um, <laughs> So I go inside the cage, and I practice with the lock, and, well, other than the large hole right in the front of it, it seems perfectly safe. Well, people begin setting up their equipment, and then finally uh, someone says, uh, Hey, Mike. Mike is the leader of the group. Hey, Mike, it looks like everyone's here. Why don't we get started? (laughs) And Mike says, Well, everyone but Meg. And suddenly the boat gets very quiet, and the fog gets very thick, and the birds go, Come on, come on, they fly off. And I'm thinking, who is this Meg person that everyone is so concerned about? Obviously, there's a lot of tension in the room. This Meg person is some sort of very big deal. But I think, well, you know what? I'm the new person. It's not really my place to ask who the Meg person is. I'll just wait and see what happens. And finally, somebody says, Oh, Mike, does Meg know that this is going to be a mixed group? He says, I don't know. Why don't you ask yourself? Here she comes now. Boom, boom, boom. 
You can hear Matt coming through the fog, and the fog gets really thick, and the birds fly off. Some of the birds have come back in the intro, but now they, they fly off again. And the fog is very thick, and then boom, boom, and Meg appears through the fog. She's taller than I am, curly red hair, white feeder, no bra. She got a big shark knife, black neoprene pants, steel toe boots. She got a cigarello out of her mouth, and on either shoulder, she's got a big steel air tank. I mean, at this point, all she really needs is an eye patch and a parrot, and she'd be a pirate. And Meg takes a look at the group, and then her eyes land on me in the cage, and she says, I thought this was gonna be a girly boat. Well, I did not know what to do. I completely panicked. I freaked. I curtsied. Milady? <laughs> well, the boat starts sailing, and the issue of chum comes up. They need two volunteers to make chum. Meg says, I'm gonna make chum. And now they need a volunteer to make chum with Meg. And all the eyes land on the new guy. So I say, okay, I'll make chum with Meg. Well, here's the deal with chum. Basically, you've got two garbage cans. One is filled with freshly dead fish. And the other one is empty except for a shovel. Well, one person, that is Meg, scoops the dead fish into the other bucket of the garbage can. And, and I start chopping it up like this until finally you get, like, well, gazpacho is what you get. You get finally, you get gazpacho. And the boat is rocking, it's hot, and fish guts are flying up on me. And now really nobody wants to talk to the new guy, because now I smell like fish guts. And if I even start to swoon a little bit, Meg goes, <laughs> Maybe two hours go by, and the captain drops anchor, and then Meg starts scooping the chum into the water. She's scooping. And everybody takes a position on the boat. And we look for a, for a, for a sign of a shark. There's no guarantee you're even going to see a shark. You just got to maybe hope that one appears. And after about a half hour, a fin pops out of the water. And everyone goes, yay! And then another fin pops out of the water here. And everyone goes, yay! And then another one, another one, another one. And finally, the water is just filled with shark fins. Well, Meg and the captain, they pick up that shark cage. And they take it and they throw it off the side of the boat. And then the captain starts letting out this rope. And the shark cage floats off about 100 feet. And someone says, well, wh what's that about? And the captain is this guy with like a weak chin and a mullet and an Iron Maiden t-shirt says, well, I didn't want the cage to scratch the paint on the boot, so... So the deal is we got to swim 100 feet out to the cage. Well, somebody says, well, what if the sharks get aggressive? He goes, okay, everybody take a stick. And he gets this bucket full of sticks, and he gives everybody one. And they're about two feet long, and they got a little wristband on one end. And then on the other end of the stick is a little tiny kind of soft nail. And he says, all right, here's what you do. If a shark gets aggressive, take your hand out of the wristband, Gently push against the shark with the blunt end of the stick. And if that doesn't work, go ahead and poke it with a nail. <laughs> poke the shark with a nail. here to go first. Meg says, I'm going first. And she straps her gear on. She pulls her mask on. She does a backflip off the boat. She swims out. We follow her bubbles. She gets into the cage. We wait, we wait, we wait. And after a few minutes, she opens up the escape hatch. She leaves out and she says, there's a whole lot of sharks in here. Well, Meg comes back and people start going out two by two and they're in there for about an hour. And Meg is throwing the chum around the cage so the sharks are circling fast. And these are Atlantic blue sharks, about 6 to 12 feet, 450 pounds, and they're totally shark-like, with the eyes on either side of the head and the big teeth. <laughs> and they're swimming around the cage. Well, it becomes evident that I am going to be one of the last teams picked to go out on the boat. And at about 3 o'clock, when all the chum is gone and the water is filled with hungry sharks, I'm partnered up with this tiny little woman named Cindy. Well, she's a very nice woman. You know, she works in an L.L. Bean factory. 
And, uh, but she's, she's tiny and she's elderly and she doesn't seem like she can be much help in an emergency. <laughs> Whatever. They give us our sticks and we jump in the water. And we're swimming out to the boat. We're swimming out to the cage. And we're trying not to look at all the sharks. We're going around going to a chum, 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 chum. Who got chum? Got chum, 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 chum. And, we, and we, get to the, we get to the cage and I open that lock. And then I lock it in, which is a really good idea. Because right away there's all these little fish going, let us in, let us in, let us in, let us in, let us in. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't. Well, you know how I mentioned that hole in the cage? Well, that's for video equipment. So you can hang your National Geographic video equipment out of the hole and film the sharks. We don't have video equipment, we just have a hole. And a lot of hungry sharks with no chum. And then this one sort of long, skinny shark swims into the hole and gets stuck right behind his neck, or where his neck would be if shark has necks. And it's looking at me like a meth addict, like, you got some fish, you holding any fish? You got some fish, you got fish. You got fish, you got chum, you got something, you holding something, you got chum, you got, you got something there. And Cindy's in the corner of the cage, like holding her, holding her stick. I'm like, well, we can't just be here with like half a shark in the cage. We gotta do something. She's not gonna do anything. So I take my stick off, I tie the wristband to the side of the cage, and then I sort of very gently press against the shark until it pops out. It's like, ah, 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 Suddenly I hear a noise. And I look down and my regulator is almost completely out of air. Well, I guess in the excitement of swimming out to the shark cage and pushing the shark and everything, I've gone through my entire tank of air in about 10 minutes. I've got to go back to the boat. I look at Cindy's regulator. She's got 3,000 pounds of air. She's tiny. She can stay here all night. She's not going anywhere. So I reach for my stick and I see that my stick has come untethered from the side of the cage. And now it's on the surface of the water floating off toward... Italy, or wherever sticks go when they want to be free. I don't know, but it's way out of my reach. So I try to pantomime to Cindy. You give me your stick. I'll swim back to the boat, get two sticks, give you one. Cindy goes. So, I'm going back without a stick. I exit the cage, and I begin swimming back to the boat. And I'm trying not to look at the sharks. Now, here's a little fact about sharks. They're attracted to shiny objects, like the weights around our waist, and the ladders on the boat. And right now, there's one very large shark trying to rip the ladder off of the boat with its teeth. I pause. And my tank is going I know I've got to get back to the boat, right? Well, the shark sees me, and it spits out the ladder. And then it turns, and it swims in the other direction. So I start swimming toward the boat, but it turns out the shark hasn't left. It's just making a U-turn under the boat. And now it's coming toward me, and I see its fin is out of the water. And I'm praying that somebody on the boat will see this and at least pull my lifeless torso out of the water. Because these people don't know me. They can just be like, oh, I don't know. You know, we parked his car, and he never showed up. We don't know what happened to him. We never saw him again. And it keeps coming and coming and coming until finally we are nose to snout. So I do the thing they tell you to do on National Geographic if you're ever nose to snout with a shark. I make the biggest fist I can. I punch it in the face as hard as I can. And from over the shark freezes and it goes, oh! And it swims away and all the other sharks are like, OMG. He like totally just wanted some fish. Well, I, look, I stick my head out of the water to see if anybody has witnessed this. And the one person on the boat who has seen it is Meg. And she's leaning over the railing with her wife beater covered with fish guts and she's got her cigarello. And she leans over the railing, she says, yeah. <laughs> so I swim back as fast as I can. Matt grabs me by the tank. She pulls me out of the water. She throws her arm around my neck and she says, this guy just punched a shark. This guy, this guy right here just punched a shark. This guy just punched a shark. Open your mouth, 
takes a beer bottle, she bites the top off, she starts pouring it down my throat. And now the captain is pulling the cage back to the boat with Sydney still in it going like this. And then they get the cage back on the boat, they turn the boat around and head back to Rhode Island. Meg throws her arm around my shoulders. And that's how I made my first friend in New England. James Judd, ladies and gentlemen. James Judd. Now, you must, you must see the video of James Judd's crazy, ridiculous performance at Snap Live in L.A. See for yourself how it all went down. Visit us at stampjudgment.org. And when we return, one woman's battle with monsters turns absolutely surreal. And Snap Judgment's own Anna Sussman goes hunting for big game. When Snap Judgment, the Monsters episode continues. Stay tuned. Today's Snap Judgment podcast was brought to you by Lumosity. See, there are so many things competing for your attention these days. You got the emails, your text, the Facebook updates. It can be hard to focus. And that's why you need to start training your brain with Lumosity.com. They've got games designed to work out your brain and improve focus, attention, and memory, keeping you sharp and on top of things. See, these exercises at Lumosity.com, they're based in the science of neuroplasticity. They're personalized to your specific brain performance goals, and they're fun. Play online, play at work, play even from an iPhone or iPad with the Lumosity app. Takes just a few minutes every day and fits right into your busy schedule. Plus, with Lumosity.com, you can track your progress online while seeing actual improvements in your daily life. You've got to try Lumosity, just like 50 million other users. Sign up today. Just go to Lumosity.com. Click the Start Training button to create your own program. Then start playing your first game. Lumosity.com. And tell them you heard it on Snap Judgment. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Monsters episode. And today... We're diving into the water from whence all our fears arise. And thankfully, for our next story, we've got a guide. If you've listened to Snap Judgment in the past, you know that no one, no one knows monsters like Anna Sussman. A while back, Anna decided to go and find a monster for herself. I took a bus through Uganda and Rwanda to get here to Burundi. I'm on a mission to stalk and find a real-life, man-eating crocodile named Gustav. Folks here say he's killed more than 300 people on the banks of Lake Tanganyika. Here in Burundi, there's been a civil war going on for 12 years. A genocide, like in Rwanda. Hutus and Tutsis killing each other by the hundreds of thousands. When I get here, the war is slowing down, and what I'd like to do is report on people who are trying to make peace. Civilians like doctors and teachers who are standing up to the 19 warring factions. But no one's interested in buying stories about peace. So instead, I'm on assignment to cover the story of Gustav, the 20-foot-long, one-ton killer crocodile. Here's what I know. There have been verified Gustav sightings, and he's been filmed by National Geographic. Gustav seems invincible, a formidable descendant of the great reptiles from the age of the dinosaurs. He's mean-looking. In pictures, you can see four distinct bullet scars, three on his scaly body and one on his head. That movie Prime Evil is based on him. The original title was Gustav. He has claimed over 300 victims. He is elusive, intelligent, cunning. I have no idea how dangerous it really is to hunt for Gustav, or how safe Burundi is. So the first place I go is the U.S. Embassy, where this crew-cut military dad-type guy assures me it's not safe at all. One of the rebel groups is still at large, shelling houses in the city and shooting up remote villages. But mostly, the rebels have become armed gangsters, 
robbing school kids and aid workers on the roads. But since I'm here, I call up a local naturalist named Patrice Fay. He's been tracking Gustav for years. All the crocodiles were killed, the big one. Only one stay. He says Gustav was like Rambo. Rambo. More clever than all the other big crocodiles who've been killed off. He's like Rambo. Patrice agrees to take me on a hunt. I climb into his jeep and we head towards Lake Tanganyika. Convoys of white UN trucks carrying food and supplies roll by. And we pass little refugee encampments on soccer fields with families sleeping under UN tarps. It feels like a country in pieces. On the side of the road, I see a single file line of women, and each one is wearing a purple headscarf, and they're escorting a young mother home from the hospital with her new baby. And they walk quickly, with purpose. They know they're vulnerable, and they're eager to get home and shut the door behind them. On the way to the lake, Patrice takes me to a school for street kids, whose parents went missing in the war. The kids are really excited about Gustav. And they sing a song about him. Don't go near the water's edge, they say. Gustav is waiting for you. And they warn me to be careful hunting the crocodile. It's not safe. The teachers at the school follow us out, and then they drag a heavy gate closed and lock the kids inside. They've all survived a decade of war, and they're not taking any chances. An hour later, we're at a remote shore of the lake. I break out my binoculars, scanning the water for Gustav. It's quiet, except for the birds and the hippos surfacing for air. Patrice explains that when Gustav is near, mother and father hippos form themselves into a wall around their babies. And then, there's a rustle in the bushes. And suddenly, a group of soldiers pulls up next to us. They speak quickly, and they say, we shouldn't be out here alone because it's not safe. One soldier says wild animals might stalk us, but another says rebels could be nearby. They stay close to us, clutching their guns. I'm on edge, but unsure exactly who to fear. I feel the collective uncertainty of this whole country finally clinging to safety after 12 years of civil war, like they're really trying to hold together a very fragile peace. The war began as an ethnic rivalry, but splintered into chaos, rebels killing civilians for no reason. Gustav is the same. He doesn't eat his victims, they say. He hunts for sport and leaves his victims' bodies on the sand. We don't see Gustav, so we pile back into the jeep and drive along the banks until Patrice finds a bunch of kids playing in the water. Sometimes Gustav is coming here. And I ask the children, Hey, Batuto, Gustav is And the kids all shout back, He's over there! He's up by the river! He's past the city! And they're all pointing in different directions. So Patrice decides to drive me to the widow of Gustav's most recent victim. A woman stands in the mud doorway of her home, and she shows me a picture of her dead husband. He's wrapped up in a white sheet, and his face is swollen. He went fishing, and they found his body days later. She says, Gustav got him. But there's no way to tell. It's getting dark, and I catch a ride back to the capital with another journalist. I'm exhausted and nervous as we pass through endless military checkpoints. I think my day is over, and then it gets scary. Idling at a stoplight, a bus loaded to the seams with people pulls up alongside us, and then the passengers begin yelling at our car, screaming at us. They beat on the bus windows with their fists. And then a man on the street tries to force open the door of our car, and another man shoves his arm through my window. And then we speed off through the light, and I'm screaming, go, 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 go! We speed past the security officer at our hotel, and he closes the gate behind us. And as I catch my breath, I figure it out. The two men on the ground 
were trying to rob us, but the bus full of people were shouting to warn us. They were trying to protect us. I never find Gustav, and it seems clear that Gustav is used as a fable for all the dangers lurking in the bush. A way to make sense of horror and loss and to warn each other, be careful. But no one here wants to let the bad guys win. The nurses, the teachers, the embassy staff, even the soldiers, they're really fed up. And they're fierce too, guarding their children and each other and me. They're determined to keep everyone safe one moment at a time. Sussman, ladies and gentlemen, Anna Sussman. From where do monsters come? Well, some descend from the sky, others squish from the swamp, and then there are those that come from another plane entirely. Miss Melina Williams tells us her story. I woke up in the morning and had by my bedside table a pint of Jack Daniels ready to go first thing in the morning. Before I even got out of bed, I'd killed that sucker. By lunchtime, I was having a couple beers in order to keep going. And this was just the way I had accepted my life to be. I had a really close friend of mine. I broke into her house, essentially, <laughs> and passed out on the couch. She comes in and is like, hey, Mo." What's up, girl? And I said, I am sick. I'm an alcoholic, and I'm dying, and I need help. My close friends knew, but they didn't know what to do. So they thankfully found a place for me to go, one of the few free detox centers in the U.S. I get admitted, and immediately they put me on all these drugs to help me not die of seizures. The first night I'm there, I'm laying in bed and shaking and sweating through three sets of sheets and blankets. And as I was laying there, I looked over onto the floor on the rug and there was this bulging bubble three feet across. And the bubble got bigger and bigger and bigger over the next few hours. And I'm watching the sunrise and it's getting lighter in the room. The bubble cracked apart. And in the middle of this huge pocket was a fully grown, fully formed hyena. She kind of shook the pieces of floor off of her fur and looked up at me and said, Hi, I'm Bubbles. And I said, I'm sorry, what? Um, and she said, oh, yes, and you need to get up and get the hell out of here and go and have a drink. And I said, first of all, you're a hallucination. Second of all, I'm not talking to you. And I rolled over and she started, you know how hyenas have that weird kind of like. (laughs) And she's pacing back and forth going, we need to have a drink right now, right now, right now, right now. Just screaming and yelling at me and I'm clapping my hands over my ears going, this is the worst day (laughs) of my life. After the first day of this and into the second day, she got more detailed in explaining why we needed to drink. We were useless, and no one cared. And if we died, that'd be fine. The next week, I had started seeing her not just in my room. I would see her out of the corner of my eye, down the halls as I was walking to a meeting, as I was going to the bathroom, as I was coming back from dinner. I would see this little brown spotted tuft zipping at the end of the hallway, waiting for me all the time. And I finally decided I was going to fight it. But she was invincible. There was nothing that would stop her. Two weeks went by in rehab, and three weeks went by, and finally I was about to be discharged. And the day I was going to leave, I packed up my stuff, and I walked out on Gough Street and started walking towards Market. Sunny, blue skies, and I'm pulling along my suitcase and a hyena, walking next to me, with the claws clicking on the sidewalk and the panting, and I could feel her bumping into me, walking in that weird kind of loping, slopey gait that hyena have. And she was just pleased as hell to be outside. 
She's like, yes, this is going to be fantastic. Three blocks from here, I know where there's a liquor store. And then four blocks from here, I know where there's another one. And between here and the house is at least eight. And I got to this block under the freeway where I was then approached by this guy who was obviously selling something. And the guy zips open the bag. And this man had a case of booze in his bag. Well, I have been offered all kinds of drugs on the street. I had never had someone walk up to me and try to sell me a bottle of booze. And Bubbles put her paws up on the edge and was just salivating. Oh, this is so good. Look, you didn't even have to go into a store. It's right here. Maybe he'll give you two for one. And I looked at him and I said, I just got out of rehab. I've been sober for 21 days. No, thanks, man. And I looked down and I said, Bubbles, no. For the next year or so, I played this game of kick the out of this hyena over and over and over again. And I'll never forget, I was sitting on the Crosstown bus. And as we were having the struggle one day, I finally said, you know, I can't hate you anymore because you're so much a part of me and you're in so much pain. What can I do? to make you happy. And I had this sensation of just holding her and having that sensation of having all of that rage and all of that anger reintegrate and to feel like we could survive as a human being, even though there was terrible evil hyena in the human being, was deeply sobering. Over the course of the next year, I started thinking, you know, actually, I want to honor her. I want to honor that part of me that does bleed and scream and ache and moan. So I went to this tattoo artist, and right now I have her on my forearm. I see her every day, and I'm able to see that part of me as beautiful. She's still here, and she still wants to run the show. And there's some days where she's really loud. There's some days where she pulls apart and turns back and goes, okay... Now you've done it. Now you've proven you don't have to drink anymore. So why don't we just toast to your success? And I'm able to look at her and say, you know, not today. Not right now. Check back with me tomorrow. Thank you for sharing your story, Lena Williams, one day at a time and much love from the Snap. That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's own Julia DeWitt. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the Monsters episode. And when Snap returns, we're going to San Quentin, and one young officer is forced to take matters into his own hands. When Snap Judgment, the Monsters episode, continues. Stay tuned. 97% water. I don't know. Hey, Glenn, you know, every time we go to the pub for trivia night, we get schooled, right? Um... And the more we lose, the louder you get. Drosophila Melanogaster. Well, I've got the fix. It's an NPR podcast called Ask Me Another. It's got word games, puzzles, trivia of all sorts. It's a rambunctious hour that blends brain teasers with comedy and music. Smog like gold, but as you know, dragons can't buy anything. So you wonder. It doesn't have to be like this, man. Find Ask Me Another on iTunes under Podcasts. Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Monsters episode. Now, the word monster means different things to different people. And for our next story, when the world labels you a monster, can you ever claw your way back to being human again? Kay DiMartini tells us her story. It's this sunny morning in March, and I'm driving to a courtroom in L.A., I want to see the trial of a gangster who's charged with kidnap and murder. His name's Armando. He's 35 years old, and he's been living in prison for the last nine years waiting for this trial. You see, I know Armando. At least I think I do. And that's why I'm here today. 
We've been writing letters for over a year, but he doesn't know my name, my address. He's never seen my picture. He doesn't even know my gender. And that's the way I want it. When I first wrote him, I didn't sign my name. And he wrote back to me and he said, everybody in prison has nicknames. I'm gonna call you 64 since that's your P.O. box number and I don't know anything else about you. In our letters, we write, we don't discuss his crime, we discuss a book and its ideas. The book is The Four Agreements. I read it about 10 years ago and it changed my life. So when The Four Agreements started this prison program and it's writing to inmates who want a study partner, I volunteered. And it wasn't long after that that I got a letter in my P.O. box and it was addressed to a resident. I opened up the letter and inside Armando introduced himself and he started out by saying, I would like to find some peace before I die. Everyone says if I pray, I'll feel God's presence, but I don't. Do you have peace? I've been waiting for my trial in prison. It's been eight years and the last two in isolation. Some guys get sent here for a few days. I live here. A rabbi and minister used to visit, but they got tired of me. If you Google me and decide not to write back, it's okay. P.S. Does it matter that I'm never going to get out? So I Google searched the hell out of him. The crime's horrible. It's a messy, botched scheme. It ended with an innocent man getting shot in the back. There's this huge high-speed chase, and three gang members are captured, and they've all been tried and convicted, except for this last one, Armando. I try to pick him out from those photos, but I can't. But what I do know is that I don't want anyone from any of those pictures ringing my doorbell. So I decide if I'm going to do this thing, if I'm going to give this letter writing a try, then I'm really going to be careful and super safe. The less he knows about me, the better. So the letters start coming, and he writes me two, three times a week, and they're always in pencil, and his printing is in little tiny letters. But in contrast to his handwriting, his thoughts and ideas are mature and deep. Sometimes he'll write and he'll veer off, and he'll discuss what he calls DP. And I know he means the death penalty, but he never writes out those words. He'll write to me, 64, what difference does it matter if I'm becoming a better person if I never have the opportunity to help someone? Isn't it all pointless? So I write back, maybe a time will come when you least expect it and you'll be able to show what you've learned. Don't give up now. That Wednesday morning when I enter the L.A. courtroom, it's the first time I see Armando. He is sitting, facing away from me, He's a small, alert-looking Hispanic man, glasses, blue shirt, goatee. And there's a large tattoo across the back of his bald head. Flats, it says. That's the name of his gang. The judge dismisses everyone, and I catch up in the hall with Armando's lawyer. I just want to talk to someone who knows him personally. I want to know, really, if Armando is the same guy I know from his letters that he is in person. I want to know if I'm getting conned. I tell him I'm a friend of Armando's, and could I talk to him for a minute? So his lawyer stops walking, and he turns around and he says, how do you know him? So I tell him about our anonymous writing relationship, and he laughs, and he says, really? He doesn't even know your name? You know, in your situation, if you took the stand as a character witness for him, you could maybe save his life. And I tell him right off, no, that's not why I'm here. Look, he's a gang member, and he's a criminal. Our deal is we write letters. What you're asking would change everything. So his lawyer says, I've been an attorney for over 40 years, and I've never met anyone like him. You know, he's the youngest of nine kids, and his mom used to beat him. The reason he doesn't have any other character witnesses is because he's been in jail his whole life. You know, you really should talk to him yourself. No, I'm not meeting him, and I'm not taking the stand. We don't do this personal stuff. We write. That's our deal. It ends there, I leave, I fly home to San Francisco. And I can't sleep. One side of me is afraid of making a big mistake, letting a monster in my house, my life. And then there are those words that keep coming back from our letters. The words that say, if all the love is on the inside, 
What difference does it make if you don't act on it? Armando does get the guilty verdict, and the sentencing trial starts. I make my final decision to be a character witness. I email his attorney. I'm in. Then I get a letter from Armando. 64. My lawyer says you're coming to take the stand. You should not do this. You will have to say your name, and I know you do not want to do this. Thank you for offering to help me, but it's okay. Please, you can refuse to come. I fly to L.A., I wait in the hall outside the courtroom and enter when the guard tells me to. When I do say, my name is Kay Demartini, I kind of choke on the words. You know, I protected this information for so long, it's, it's hard to let it go. And then I take the stand and I tell the jury everything I know about this man, this man with a horrendous childhood who has mentored me in spiritual lessons. I study the 12 jurors and I can't read their faces. The prosecutor then has his turn at me, and it gets ugly. He paints me as a pathetic cliché, a lonely single woman looking for attention. He takes parts of Armando's letters and reads them out of context. I get angry, the judge gets involved, the public defender steps in. It's a circus. A week later, I get a phone call from his attorney telling me Armando got the death penalty. Maybe I was a problem instead of an asset. Then the letter from Armando comes, and in it he says, Dear 64, I want to thank you for coming to L.A. You are the only one at the trial that mentioned I've been in isolation for three years. That meant so much to me. I hope you will still write me. And can I still call you 64? It's nothing personal. It's just that this is how I know you. I hope it's okay. These days I write less often to Armando, because he's only 40 minutes away, and I can visit him at San Quentin. Katie Martini is a storyteller who hosts the event Real Stories Bay Area once a month. We're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. Now then. As every true monster hunter knows, no Snap Monster episode will be complete without a trip to New Mexico. Cisco Guevara brings us this story from the land of enchantment. Back in the day, the U.S. government got together the greatest minds to build the atomic bomb. They found a little town up in the mountains. They actually dumped a lot of toxic things out into the beautiful canyons. There was a beast, probably had been poisoned by some kind of toxic chemical or radiation that the scientists had inadvertently dumped into the canyons. But everybody knows that it comes out of this one certain extra deep canyon called Arroyo Aguaje. A lot of people couldn't pronounce the Spanish words, so it became known as the Guaji Monster. And all they knew that it was big, it was white, and it was horrible looking. The Guaji Monster. It would make an appearance at night, usually by taking somebody's pet out of their backyard and just leaving a splotch on the porch where the dog used to be. This went on for several years, actually. One day, a call came into the police department. There was some shenanigans going on at the local cemetery, and police were very frustrated. And so this one officer in particular, he decided, well, I'm going to show these kids. I'm going to really take care of this issue. And it just so happened that the cemetery is right at the entrance to Arroyo Aguaje Canyon, where the Guaji monster lives. It was late at night, and he uh, was cruising down in here, and he turned off the motor of his car and coasted in so he could surprise these kids. Very carefully opened the car door, stepped out of the car very slowly. 
and was listening to the sounds of the night to see if he could tell where these kids were and what they were up to. Nothing. So he started moving out away from his car, and that's when he started thinking about, oh, this is Arroyo Aguaje Canyon. The Guaji monster lives here. The hair on his arm started to stand up as he thought about it. His hand went down and unclipped the holster to his pistol, just in case. He got a little more nervous, and he actually pulled the gun out of the holster just just to be a little more secure. And then he heard a noise. A very strange noise. And he turned, and there it was. A horrible, huge monster face with big, wide mouth, with teeth and huge, wide-set, glowing eyes. And what did he do? Shot his car. The grill of the car looked like a mouth in his scared state, and the headlights looked like big, wide-set eyes. And in his fear, in the dark, he actually shot his own car. True story. Big thanks to Cisco for sharing his story with the snap. Remember, be careful out there, because danger lurks. That piece was produced by Rita Daniels, Malin Shalita, and sound design by Pat Masidi Miller. You've been listening to Snap Judgment, the Monsters episode. And don't worry, there's plenty more Snap where this came from full episodes, music, movies, all available for your listening pleasure, snapjudgment.org. While you missed part of the episode, catch us on iTunes, Facebook. Our Twitter handle is snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by myself and the most magnificent, mighty, monster-making miscreants in Mayberry. Flap your wings for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Masini Miller knows not what he does. Jamie DeWolf battles monsters every day. Anna Sussman doesn't have a dark side. Stephanie Fu does have a dark side. Julia DeWitt is incubating some sort of strange, multicolored egg that did not come from a chicken. Renzo Gorio knows the night. And Will Urbina says he does not believe. Did you ever show up to work and find that guy wearing some sort of dragon monster slippers instead of regular work shoes? Don't contemplate too hard. That's just a corporation for public broadcasting, taking this whole casual Friday thing way too far. No worries. Much love to the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media and stuffing public media into the public, if you know what I mean. PRX.org. And this is not the news. This is not the news. In fact, you could go to your favorite coffee shop, order a drink from that attractive barista, but notice when she accidentally scratches herself with your credit card for a moment, for a brief moment, you saw green scales pulsing underneath her exquisitely toned flesh. You could see all that, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.